This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Due to my alter ego's time constraints, this week we only have my standalone look at Bunny Girl Senpai's ninth episode. Um, I also want to take this opportunity to begin by discussing a writing technique that is often employed in stories involving romance and look at how it has been utilized in this series so far. Um, then we will continue on to the episode itself. So, most humans are wired for romance. We find it so compelling that we even enjoy watching romance happen secondhand. A great editor I once studied put it like this uh, when addressing prospective playwrights, though the same advice will apply to all story writers. He said that if you begin a play by having a man and woman catch sight of each other, the audience instantly wants them to get together. As a writer, your job is to keep that from happening as long as possible. The tension of will they or won't they draws an audience's interest forward. Or in a multiple suitor story, like most rom-coms or harem comedies, which guy or girl will they choose, if any, becomes the question that pulls the audience along. What will a couple need to overcome in order to be together? Quite aside from any other character goals or development, that desire to experience romance vicariously gives the audience an extra stake in the outcome of the narrative. This is why so many stories with romantic plots or subplots will end once the couple gets together in some definitive way. Once the conflict of whether they are able to be a couple is resolved, the interesting part of the story is over. So thus do many fairy tales end with, and they lived happily ever after. Because in truth, the peaceful happiness you imagine for a successful romance is kind of boring by comparison to the struggles required to get there. Now, not all romance stories end once the couple is together or married or whatever, but what those stories often have instead is some new tension that pulls the couple apart or threatens their relationship or threatens one of their lives. The romance still gives us an extra stake in hoping they remain together, but now it's not a question of will they get together, but will they be able to stay together. In Bunny Girl Senpai, the first arc largely followed the normal romantic comedy structure. It was obvious from episode two on that Mai and Sakata were falling headlong into one another. There was very little mystery about how they felt. Yet, the threat of Mai's disappearance seemed like it would thwart them getting together like they wanted. Once Sakata helps solve her issue and confesses at the end of episode three, I imagine it felt a lot like the series could end right there, right? That is the normal place we see romances cut off. Instead, we have most of the rest of the story remaining to be told. However, as obvious as it is to us and to them that they are going to be a thing, situations continue to crop up that prevent a peaceful existence as a couple. Tomoe's arc immediately requires that Sakata pretend to be with her, which of course completely excludes being with Mai. 
Even if that was ultimately rewound from the point of view of most characters, the audience still had to wait three more episodes to see Mai and Sakata get to officially start their relationship. Then, Mai's return to show business begins to keep them separate in the spaces between arcs. Her return to work is something that Mai and Sakata both want, and as I said last time, it was probably instrumental in solving Mai's crisis, but it comes with the cost of keeping them apart. Futaba's arc further interferes, because Sakatua, of course, immediately derails what he wants to do in order to take care of a friend in crisis. Now, the writers aren't stupid, and they know that Mai and Sakata's banter with one another is one of the crown jewels of the show. So even though they keep crafting events to keep them from settling into a peaceful togetherness, they also make sure that they can keep making contact and giving us little slices of their romance to keep our interest up. Thus, even though Futaba's split disrupts them from spending as much time as they want together, it also gives Mai an excuse to stay at Sakata's house, giving us a tease of a first kiss that fails but is hinted will have a payoff in the future. Then, Mai's agent learning about their relationship drives them apart again, with the idol-esque prohibition against going on dates or being somewhere private together like his house. Just like her return to the biz, this is a sacrifice they are willing to endure in the short term because they have a good sense of priorities. All fine and good, but it leaves the audience hanging once again. That brings us to our new arc, where Mai and her younger half-sister Nodoka have swapped bodies. Um, at this point, Mai knows exactly what is going on, and knows that Sakata will also recognize good old adolescent syndrome in action. Nodoka can hardly believe how nonplussed the two of them are about something so extraordinary, but this is old hat by now. They know the next step is to figure out why it happened, and so once again, the writers provide a justifiable reason to bridge the situation that keeps Mai and Sakata apart. Just like with Futaba's arc, Mai has a new excuse to stay at Sakata's apartment, and since she doesn't look like herself, they neatly circumvent the agency prohibition against the two of them risking being seen in private together. So, from an overhead point of view, this drawing together and pushing apart of Sakata and Mai is a logical means to keep a romance story up in the air without actually questioning how the couple feel about each other. On the scale of the single episode, though, we actually will get progression in Sakata's understanding of his girlfriend. As it turns out, this particular bout of adolescent syndrome has its origins in her and her sister's youth. It's a clever way to keep progressing their romance while it's still being kept on ice in other ways. So, let's talk about our new crisis and its roots in the past, and then we'll discuss the cliffhanger and what we think that might be about. Last time, I floated the possibility that the blonde idol would turn out to be the already referenced younger half-sister. Building upon that assumption and her comments about Mai, I thought there was a good chance that said sister might harbor both reverence and envy toward her accomplished older sibling. Something like this is just what Sakata guesses the first time he and Mai can speak in private about the situation, but there is more to the story. Evidently, the mothers of the two girls have a long history of competing with one another via their daughter's success. Mai has won that contest most of the time, to a greater degree than Sakata has even guessed. He is worried that Nodoka riding the train alone might garner too much attention, thinking that she is famous like Mai, but not only is she not worried about that, she at first thinks he might be mocking her. Now, from past experience, 
Sakura knows that some kind of inner turmoil is to blame for the supernatural shenanigans afflicting his girlfriend and her sister, something that Futaba even points out must be obvious to him. So almost from the moment he is brought into the crisis, he starts studying Nodoka and her interactions with Mai, and asks her questions or provokes her to see her response. Early on, he even elicits a confession from her that she used to impersonate Mai when she was a child, that Mai was her pride and who she looked up to. Of course, this is at odds with the way he sees them behave around each other, with the notable example of her stopping herself from calling Mai One-chan in person, but doing so naturally when around Sakata. This should remind you a lot of how Tomoe would let her natural speech patterns slip around him as well. Sakata quickly concludes that Nautica's situation concerns her relationship with Mai and with her parents. Coming to Mai's apartment is the change in her routine that might have been the inciting incident, and the only reason to have done so that he can guess is that she is in a fight with said parents. But since he now knows that the parents pit the girls against each other, it's an easy leap to guess that there would be resentments toward Mai for being the subject matter in this conflict. He speaks this to her, and she does not deny it, though she's surprised that he gleaned as much. Worse to her, though, is that Mai probably can also figure out this much. Thus, rather than go have a long, honest talk with Mai, as Sakata next suggests, she asks to stay at his place instead, unwilling to face Mai now that her secret hate is not so secret. Now, in our arcs before now, being honest with oneself and accepting oneself has been key to overcoming each crisis. Sakata is nearly brazen in the way he prods Nodoka to coax out the truth, naturally assuming that if he can get the sisters to have a heart-to-heart, -heart, it will either solve the issue or get them well on the way to a resolution. He probably thinks it's quite the stroke of luck to have Mai show up just as Nodoka is preparing to run away especially when she decides to go ahead and say what she wanted to say right then and there. Mai's return to showbiz, just as Nodoka was finally becoming ascendant, appears to be the catalyst for this heightened resentment. And once she gets this off her chest, Mai confesses that she has some resentment of her own. But this confrontation doesn't solve anything. Rather, the two do separate, with the aforementioned opportunity for Mai to stay over in the guise of her sister. Then they go about trying to live the other person's life as best they can. This appears to largely go well, with Nodoka successfully completing modeling shoots and interviews, and Mai learning the song and dance routines well enough to pass muster, even though she's never done that sort of thing before. They seem no closer to resolving the actual crisis. However, the commercial shoot has Nodoka spooked, and she practices trying to emulate Mai's expressions in preparation. Sakata suggests she ask Mai for advice on this impersonation, but it's clear she will not entertain the idea. Likewise, Mai will show up at Sakata's restaurant, and though he tries to bring up Nodoka's worry over the shoot, Mai will not volunteer any support or advice, though she does ask if Nodoka asks for any advice. It seems that the two girls have each other on their minds, but their standoff is so pronounced that they won't even communicate with Sakata as intermediary. It's as though offering or asking for help is an admission of defeat, or of accepting blame for the situation. However, right after the shoot, Mai wants to know how it went the very next time she sees Sakata. While I'm sure she has professional interest in her actual job being performed correctly, I can't help but think that this is another way to check on her sister without admitting that she is doing so. 
but she is surprised to learn that Nodoka couldn't do it, as she cracked under the pressure. Sakata actually chastises her a bit for not realizing that possibility. Nodoka has always been chasing after Mai and her success, and always coming up short. In this situation, she is not just being asked to measure up to Mai, she is being asked to actually be Mai. To pull off a performance on a level that is effortless and normal for Mai, but beyond anything Nodoka has accomplished so far. The stress Nodoka is under for this one shoot is representative of the stress she is under all the time in her life. This mandate that she live up to the standard Mai sets, coupled with her own belief that she cannot actually do so. Sakura's quest to understand Nodoka's turmoil leads him to wonder what it would be like to have an overachieving older sister, and he proposes this hypothetical to Kunimi. This brings Kamisato, of all people, into a position to be helpful. Just as Tamoe provided a parallel to Futaba during her arc with the whole Yukata thing, Kamisato is brought in as a parallel to Nodoka to help give insight into the girl's thought process. Kamisato's older sister was the school council president, and superlatively accomplished. In fact, she is surprised that Sakata didn't know about her. Just like Nodoka, Kamisato has often been compared to her sister unfavorably by her mother, and there is definitely an element of resentment to this admission. From this, Sakuda gleans that the dynamic goes well beyond simply liking or not liking one another. This bit also gives us some insight into Kamisato. Her inferiority complex toward her sister likely makes her very sensitive to how she is perceived by others. Having a desirable boyfriend like Kunimi contributes to a positive perception of her, at least to her mind, which is why she is so threatened by Sakata. He attracts the kind of unfavorable comparisons to Kanimi that she so hates being directed at herself. She is worried about being judged negatively for her own proximity to him. It's more than just a superficial quest after popularity, but a perceived threat to her sense of self. The irony here is that Sakuda didn't know about her sister. He's possibly one of the few people in the school who is not even capable of comparing them against one another and so he could have been a friend to her whose judgment she never had to fear. But self-esteem issues wreak havoc all over the place in the lives of these characters. Parents often shoulder some of the blame, which seems to be the case in both Kamisato's and Nodoka's inferiority complexes. However, Mai herself has been negatively impacted by her mother, and the after-effects are showing up in this arc as well. In her role as agent, Mai's mom betrayed her trust by putting her into the swimsuit shoot, the events that led to her hiatus from show business, and probably eventually to her own bout of adolescent syndrome. Despite the disappearing act being halted, Mai still has unresolved issues with trust due to her mother's betrayal. This is part of why this current crisis continues as it has. Mai still struggles to be completely honest with Sakata, though part of the reason he is so precious to her is that she can be as vulnerable with him as she is. However, she has not made the same progress in trusting anyone else, and so is unable to make the first move toward her sister. When she gives Sakata the key to her place, he knows very well that Nodoka is on her mind and suggests she go talk to her, but she doesn't know what to say and doesn't even want to admit that much to her. I think she is hoping that Sakata can say for her what she cannot say herself, or at the very least open up some crack in the stalemate. Now, 
Why does she give him a key when the two of them see each other at school each day? We will come back to that. Sakura goes immediately to the apartment, and after he invites himself inside, Noriko can't help but ask after what Mai might have said about the failed shoot. When Sakura reveals that Mai assumed Noriko would pull it off, even if it meant some retakes, her reaction is not a feeling of shame at falling short of her sister's expectations. Instead, she is delighted to find out that Mai had those kind of expectations in the first place. As Sakura points out, her smile in that moment is a genuine one. After prompting Noriko to take a bath with the promise of food afterward, Sakata is left alone to pursue the matter of the cabinets that he should never ever open. We end with the question of whether or not he will open them unanswered. While he may very well get interrupted next time, I am pretty sure he intends to open the cabinets. In fact, I am pretty sure that is exactly what Mai intends for him to do. I asked a moment ago why she gave him the key. He has no shortage of opportunities to speak to either of them, and even if it was pressing that he speak to Nodoka this night, he could always say as much, and then invite her to go get dinner somewhere else. If Mai really has something in those cabinets that Sakata should never ever see, then the last thing she would do is give him a key to her place, insinuate he should go there without her, and then bring up the subject of the cabinets at all. Instead, she knows Sakata, and what's more, she knows that Sakata knows her. This is a way to ensure that he investigate the cabinets without her asking him to do so, a reverse psychology game that they both know they are playing. Sakata even calls attention to this for the audience when Nodoka tells him not to peek at her when she is bathing. He immediately says, are you asking me to peek in? That is, is your unnecessary directive actually an invitation to do the opposite? It's not for Nodoka, but it is for Mai. So what could be in this cabinet that Mai wants Sakata to find, but doesn't want to admit that she wants him to find? Earlier, I referenced how other arcs have largely hinged around the girls coming to a place where they are honest with themselves, accepting of who they are and who they are not, and what they really want. Mai and Nodoka did have a moment of honesty with each other this episode, but rather than solving anything, it has created a complete radio silence between them. What I would like to suggest is that they have only been half honest. Both admitted to feeling some resentments toward the other, even though they knew it originated with their parents. That is, both were able to be honest about the negative things they think about the other. But as Sakato remarked after Kamisato's example, it's not as simple as liking or not liking. Thus, I think the current stalemate may stem in part from their inability to be honest about the positive things that they think about one another. We already see some of this in Nodoka, who admits to looking up to Mai when they were children, wanting to impersonate her, and of course her habit of thinking of her as Onei-chan rather than Mai-san. Heck, even on the talk show we saw last time, she announced that Mai was her favorite thing. Knowing what we now know about her mother, that doesn't seem like the kind of thing she would say flippantly, right? Maybe it was just to get a rise out of said mother, but at least at one point in Nodoka's life, it was probably the truth, and may still be the truth now, even if it is coupled with resentment. Now, we have those examples of Nodoka having positive inclinations towards Mai that she won't admit. Does Mai also have positive things to say in return that she cannot admit? 
I already mentioned how delighted Nodoko was at the thought that Mai expected her to be capable of doing the commercial shoot. We saw the clip of her on the television last time as our initial introduction, but remember, it was Mai who was watching that program when Sakata came home. Surely she would have just turned it off, even if it's stumbling on it by accident, if she really only felt resentment toward Nodoka, right? So what if Mai is secretly proud of her little sister? Or at least has been interested in her and her career? Or even considers her a real rival, rather than a distant second place the way Nodoka sees herself? None of those seem like things that Mai can admit to her sister, the way things stand right now, and especially with how strained their past seems to be. Mai is proud on the one hand already, but this is also beyond her capacity for vulnerability right now. So I think she is trusting Sakata to help communicate these positive feelings to Nodoka to at least break the ice on that conversation. Therefore, I suspect that the cabinet will contain some memento which points to Mai's affection toward her little sister. Maybe this is some totem connected to a precious childhood memory. Maybe it is something that shows she has been following her sister's career. But having Sakata accidentally uncover something which suggests Mai looks favorably on Nodoka seems like a logical progression to inch the two of them closer to a resolution. What is certainly happening in the interim is each of them building empathy with the other. They are quite literally walking in each other's shoes right now. Nodoka is developing an appreciation for the incredible pressure that comes with being Sakurajima Mai, and Mai is getting to experience how much work goes into being an idol, and how insane Nodoka's mother appears to be. Considering how positively Nodoka reacted to Mai's assumption about her abilities, isn't further acknowledgement likely to prompt a much more honest and complex conversation between them, even if it is initiated by Sakata's actions with the cabinet? I imagine they both love and hate each other, and the terrible parts of their childhoods are all mixed up with the positive memories, and the link between their careers and the way they have been played against one another kind of confuses the two issues in their mind. Um, it's all quite messy. Mai was forced into show business, but eventually came to love it, and accept the bad with the good. Nodoka was likewise forced into it, but does she actually love it? Is it possible that receiving acknowledgement or praise from Mai might be all she really wants out of it? I could even see her bowing out of the idol game if she found acceptance and validation. We already know she gave up her friends because of her debut, which is probably just one more thing that makes her bitter at Mai for returning to the biz. Anyway, that is a speculation built upon a speculation, so that is far enough to take it. Um, I will say that I kind of expect this experience with little sister problems will set up Sakata to become more proactive about his own little sister and her still unresolved situation. That would parlay neatly into a final arc if this one is set to wrap up next time. Title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash nearlyonred. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.